you, everyone. Thank you, Reverend and uh, Mr. I forgot both your names by now. And Beverly for inviting for making this possible. Um, I'd like to ask everyone that as you listen here, we're going to all close our eyes. I think this is a great opportunity. I've been I've uh, been excited to come here since I uh, was invited, uh, and once I had a chance to look over the material because. As you're all certainly aware, this is a place for the science of the mind. So here we're going to be talking about the mind. And the, the external world is, is, is not of so much use to us at this point. Um, not, not as much as is the understanding of our own minds. And relating to things from the, the point of view of the mind. So for close, closing the eyes is often quite useful in, in bringing us back to reality. So I was asked to give a talk tonight on what we call the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. And um, first of all, I'd like to break this apart and sort of explain to you what is truth in Buddhism, uh, or according to the Buddha. Actually, in, b because I'm not talking to a Buddhist audience, it's important to understand first something about the word Buddhism. And as with many words, it, you're probably all very familiar with this. We, it, it helps to segregate and separate us, which is, of course, um, a very dangerous thing to do. And really all we mean by Buddhism is the teaching of the Buddha. And all we mean by the Buddha is the one who came to realize these teachings. So in the same way that Einstein was the one who, realized, who came to understand or to figure out what we call special relativity or the theory of relativity, um, the Buddha was the one who... who he was a person in India who came to understand what we call the Four Noble Truths. And this was his teaching. And a couple of things about the Four Noble Truths. First of all, that um, they're a very practical thing. And this is often overlooked when we come to study Buddhism. Um, when we study the Buddha's teaching, we often look at it from a theoretical point of view as outsiders. Um, you know, we'll be interested, we've heard of this thing called Buddhism, and uh, so we want to learn about it, so we go and pick up a book, and we try to intellectually understand the Four Noble Truths, and of course, as with any spiritual tradition, that's, that only gets you so far. Um, so tonight I'm going to be focusing on the practical aspects of the Four Noble Truths and how they can be put into practice. As said, I'm mostly focused on meditation, and in fact... If anything can be said, I focus much more on meditation than I do on Buddhism. And so I'd like to ask everyone to keep that in mind and, and please have an open mind that I'm not going to be preaching or trying to push any religion, certainly not my religion. But I would like to push meditation, of course, even though I understand that many of you are already practicing, if not all of you are already practicing. So I'm very happy to be here. The other thing I'd like to say is... Um, that as far as truth goes, when we're talking about truth, there are two kinds of truth. And this is according to the Buddhist teaching. There's the kind of truth that we're not really concerned with, but that we use every day. I'm not going to be concerned with here, but I'm going to explain it, um, because we're going to try to cut this out of our discourse and cut this out of our, our field of, of vision. This kind of truth is, well, like when we say that Paris is the capital of France, it's called conventional truth. It's truth that can change, truth that depends upon concepts. So when we say Paris is the capital of France, we're depending on the fact that <coughs> we have an agreement on the existence of Paris, um, and we have this range of, of area which we call Paris and then we have another range of area which we call France and these are both totally conceptual there's no line at, at uh, the edge of Paris that says Paris is finished and there's no line at the edge of France that says France is finished it's something that we create and that dwells in our minds when you call me Noah this is true, this is my name it's a conventional truth this may all be very clear to you already I'm not, I'm not sure um, what you study in, in your tradition but it's important to, to uh, take this out of the way in the beginning. Because 
this comes to get in the way with a lot of our religious and spiritual discourse where we confuse these two kinds of truth. We come to see conventional truth or, or truth based on concepts with what we call ultimate truth or truth which doesn't change, truth which, which uh, really is uh, a part of reality. Conventional truth is actually uh, not really real. It's not um, anything to do with ultimate reality. So the, truth, the Four Noble Truths here are the second kind of reality, and this is what I'm going to talk about today. The truth according to the Buddha, um, the truth that he taught was totally in, in regards to ultimate reality. And so this is why, um, first of all, it's, it's great to be in a place like this where we're dealing with um, uh, a worldview which begins with a mind. Um, the because the truth, the, the, the truth that the Buddha regarding reality, um, it, it comes from experience. It starts from experience. When we talk about what is ultimate reality, we have these various different views. We have the materialist view that scientists generally hold and many atheists will hold, that there is no mind, that the mind does not exist, and there's only the physical world. And so this is the kind of view that we that is, is in every part of our discourse in the Western world. And this is why it's so important that we take these radical steps, like closing our eyes, sitting very still, um, undertaking meditation. Because it's very difficult for us to see the truth simply walking around and talking and interacting with the things around us. In, in a, you know, for a beginner, at least. Or we can consider that all of us are in this life, well, many of us are beginning in the spiritual path. And for myself, I don't consider uh, any sort of superiority. This is something that we um, really need to do, is to take time to meditate. Because reality has nothing to do with the, the three-dimensional physical world. This, these are all concepts that we've come up with. And so we have distances and we have space. Um, according to the tradition of, of the Lord Buddha, um, Reality is based totally on experience. And so every part of the, our discourse on what is true, and this might very well, this is true in many other uh, religious traditions, comes from this experience, comes from a here and a now um, interaction with the world around us from the point of view of the mind. Now this is not to say that the physical does not exist. There's another theory that says that the mind only exists and there is no physical and that this is just an illusion and this there are very various spiritual traditions that um, propose this theory and say that the physical is only a representation or a, uh, an illusion created by the mind or, or so on now the, the Buddha didn't didn't um, support this theory either and what I'm trying to get at here is that the Reality, according to the Buddha, is what is, what can be experienced. It's, it's not that what we experience is an illusion. Um, it's that our experience is one thing, and our uh, interpretation of it is another. And this is where conventional reality gets in, in the way. And so this, this is, as I start to talk about the Four Noble Truths, this can uh, become, should become clear. So another thing to, about truth in Buddhism that has to be made clear is, is that there are many different truths out there. And so when you hear me talk about the Four Noble Truths, you somehow get the idea that there's, uh, or I think that there's something special about the truth, about my truth, the truth that I'm about to give you, and that um, all many other truths are, are, are not real or they're not as special. Why, these four no why the Four Truths were called noble is because they were helpful they are something that is useful. That's all it means. It's something that is actually useful to us. So this is another qualifier to the word truth that we're, we're looking at here. It's understood that there are many truths that are a part of ultimate reality or, or, or re the reality of our experience here as we're sitting that are maybe not so helpful to us or not so useful to us. There might be the reality of, of what's in the next room or, or what happens if I shout really loud or, or um, you know, how, 
how my actions will affect the world around me in, in, in a physical sense or so on. That might not be very useful in terms of bringing peace and happiness and freedom from suffering or bringing a, an understanding of, of reality. And so here we have a, a, a set of truths that the Lord Buddha said are, are, or the Buddha said are helpful to us, are something that are going to bring us um, real benefit and real advantage through our understanding of these four truths. So this is what is meant by these four. These are considered to be not all of the truth, not the whole truth, nothing, nothing but the truth, but not the, maybe not the whole truth, but some, some four truths that will really help us something like the 12-step program in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's something that is of use, of use to us. That is what's meant by these four noble truths. There's something that is truly noble because someone who practices them can become a noble person, someone who is free from all of the, um, say, the mental defilements or mental sicknesses that plague the world. This is the... the, the um, this is what the Lord Buddha has stated about these things, is that through the practice of these, or through the understanding of these, one can actually overcome all kinds of mental sickness and illness and, and um, all kinds of evil things that might exist in our minds, anger and greed and so on, through understanding these things. So I'm going to explain these and I'm going to try to see how we can apply them, uh, just simply looking at ourselves and coming to see what's, uh, what's going on inside of ourselves. The first noble truth is the one that really gets the Buddhist teaching in trouble with people. And especially for those coming from other traditions, they'll often use this as a sort of a way to close the door on Buddhism or on the Buddhist teaching. Um, it can often, for people who are really looking for something to pick on, you know, this and often in, in people who are trying to, try to separate or segregate traditions, they'll often say that Buddhism is all about suffering. Because they say the first noble truth of the Lord Buddha is suffering. Or they say, they'll often say the, the first noble truth is that life is suffering. And this is totally untrue. This is an absolute untruth. The Buddha never once said, and I, I can say this as a Buddhist, and just for all of you who maybe have not so much knowledge of Buddhism, the Buddha never once said that life is suffering. He never once made that uh, accusation or that uh, statement. In fact, what the Lord Buddha said that there, he said that there is suffering. This is this is the first truth that he wanted to impress upon us is that there is suffering, and for for spiritual people, I think this is this is a sort of a given, and it's something that we understand in life, and we understand that that it's this suffering or this um, the, you know the problem with ordinary experience that we're trying to um, overcome or we're trying to rise above or we're trying to go beyond. We're trying to get trying to get to a state of, of, of peace and happiness and freedom from suffering. But the the ramifications for at least for ordinary people is to wake us up to this this fact of life that we're most of the time running away from. People who are not generally on a spiritual path are very much very often running away from suffering. And probably all of us here are in some ways running away from suffering, even from just simple physical suffering. For instance, when we have a headache, we'll always try to um, take a pill to, to get rid of it. When we have a backache, we'll go to see a masseuse. When we're sitting here and we suddenly start to have pains and aches or itches, we'll have to adjust the body. When we have mental suffering, we're also trying to run away from it. We don't want to learn about it. We don't want to understand it. We don't want to know it's even there. So we go to the doctor and they prescribe us medication to help us to not have to experience this mental suffering, whether it be sadness or depression or anxiety or fear or worry or stress. We've got to find a cure for it to get rid of it. And, and it's not to say that there is no cure and that that's not a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing to get rid of all of these things. But we never look for the cure in understanding these things. There's, there's very little out there that says um, the real cure is in understanding these things or that you have to look at them and you have to be there with these things to cure them. We always go the opposite direction. We always say the cure is to you know, get rid of it. Don't, don't, don't go near it. Be as far away from that experience as possible. And so this is the, 
this is why the Lord Buddha put this in front. I'm sorry, I used the Lord Buddha. You're going to have to excuse me. I'm used to talking to Buddhist meditators. I hope it's not offensive. It's just my, you could say my teacher. The, the Buddha is my teacher, so I call him my, the, my Lord. It doesn't mean he's a god or anything. It's just a word that we use. I'm so, I apologize. It's just stuck to my tongue. The, so the Buddha, he explained that we, to overcome these things, we have to understand them. And that really all of our suffering is, an un, is a misunderstanding. It's based on not understanding what's going on when we suffer. Because suffering exists, it's there. And we have choices. We can run away from it. We can act upon it. Or we can come to understand it. And I would say there are only these three. Normally we say there are two. There's fight or flight. And I've always, I've always found that an interesting dichotomy, and I've always thought of how Buddhism stands right in the middle as not running away from the, the problem, but also not acting upon it. So when you're angry or when you're confronted by a, a difficult situation, you can either repress the, the, the excitement, the anger, the frustration, or you can act out upon it. Now, the Buddha explained a third method of simply just watching it. So when you're angry, we're not trying to get rid of the anger or replace it with anything else. We're going to look at it and we're going to see what's going on here. We're going to try to understand it. And, and as a result, we're going to be able to say to ourselves, you know, this is really not a, a good thing. This is really not something that's beneficial to me. And if it is beneficial, then we'll, 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 we'll be able to see that as well. We're not trying to be dogmatists where we say that this is bad, this is good. What we're trying to do is to look and to see for ourselves, is it good? Is there something good about anger? Is there something good about greed, about attachment? Because if there is, then we should keep it. We should develop it. It's a very open uh, sort of practice. And I, I'm hoping that it's very much in line with what's taught here. Of course, I have very little knowledge about what you study here. But hopefully you'll have some time to explain to me or ask questions after so what did the Lord Buddha say is suffering? He said suffering exists. Well, I think in many ways we already know what is the suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering. Um, getting things that you don't want. Disappointment, sadness, depression. All of these things are, are, are these real sufferings. Just aches and pains. This is the kind of suffering that exists. But the Lord Buddha said the real suffering is clinging. This is, this is really the truth of suffering that the Lord Buddha taught. Is that uh, clinging or attachment, this is a suffering. This, this is where suffering exists. That none of these things that cause us suffering can really do so unless we allow them to. There's nobody else in this world who can cause us suffering. It's our mind. It's, that's the I that exists in this world. This is my... Um, Sort of my outlet is here. This is the you know, universe. If we think of the universe as one, then this is this outlet is me. And what is that? This is uh, my interaction with with these experiences. When there's pain in the body, for instance, a very simple one. It's very hard to find um, the the cl clarity of mind that can simply see the pain for what it is and not be upset by it. And this is exactly what we're trying to do in, in, in the meditation practice that the, that the Buddha taught. We're trying to see that actually there's nothing about the pain that's negative at all. It's our decision that we make in our minds that this pain is bad. This is a negative thing. This is suffering for me. And so this is the first noble truth that the Lord Buddha taught is that it's our clinging. Everything, all of these things that we say are suffering, yes, they are suffering, but why they are suffering for us is because we're holding on to it. That's the first one. The second one is, why are we holding on to it? What's the cause that leads us to hold on? And this, this is the, called the truth of the cause of suffering. Some people say that the Buddha was like a doctor. He, he had a sickness and he prescribed the cure to it. He, had a, he knew what the problem was and what was the cause. And he said, what is the path that leads to uh, freedom from sickness, freedom from the problem? 
And so this is very much how the Four Noble Truths are set up. There's the cause of suffering and then the, the cause of, hap- of freedom from suffering, or the path that leads. So the cause of suffering is, is, um, is desire or, or, or craving, we say. The word desire is very tricky, and, and, and there's many people who would argue that there are many good kinds of desire, and I would be one of those people who would say that your desire to come here tonight was a good desire. But I also say that it's not it, it it's a very semantic sort of desire because as soon as you got here, that desire ceased. Right? Because you, you achieved your goal and it was it was more of an intention than you could say a desire. Now what we mean by desire here is this wanting of certain things or partiality towards certain experiences. Because remember we're dealing with ultimate reality here, and reality is one, it, it is this. I mean my reality, my experience of reality, there's only one experience of reality. I'm not having two different experiences of reality. And I never will have two different experiences of reality. There's only one. It, it is this way. So, so given that, my desire for things to be a different way than what it is, is a cause for suffering for me. Why? Because it's not that way. And what happens when things are not the way you want? Then you're not getting what you want. And we just said that that's suffering. It's a clinging. You First, you, you want it to be a certain way. It's not that way, and suddenly you cling to that at the fact, the fact that it's not the way you want it to be. You're not able to accept uh, the reality of the situation. Another problem people always have with this, the idea of that attachment or craving is, is suffering and a cause for suffering, is that they often look at their relationships and, and they understand relationships to be a kind of attachment. We say, well, I'm attached to my son, I'm attached to my daughter, I'm attached to my husband, I'm attached to my wife, I'm attached to my parents, and so on. And we say, well, we think those attachments are good attachments. I mean, that's our relationships as people. And I always get this question, so I'm going to cut it off um, maybe before it comes up. Um, Actually, there's two different parts of every relationship, as we should all be aware if we think about it. There's the love, and then there's the attachment. And for most people, this is the case. There's, we don't have pure love for every being, um, but we don't have total attachment and without, without love for any being. But the difference here is quite um, remarkable. And it's remarkable in, in the result that it brings as well. When you love someone, you're saying, I want you to be happy. And you're giving all you have to them, or you're giving something to them, depending on how much love you have for them. When you're attached to to someone, you're saying, I want you to make me happy. And you're taking from them. You're asking them for something. You're, You're expecting something from them. And so what happens when we're all attached to each other? What's the result? Does anybody get anything? If you think about it, the more attachment that we have, and as a human race, the more attachment we have in our relationships, the the more terrible our relationships become. The more dry and bare and desolate they become. And this is why they don't work. Our relationships will often break down and lead to divorce, lead to uh, estrangement and so on. But what happens when we're all loving? When we're saying, I want to make you happy. What can I do to help you? What can I do for you? And this is totally not attachment. Because it's not saying, I need you to be in this way or that way. It's saying, I want you to be happy. I want to do something to to improve your life, to benefit you. And we're not... A, that, it's, it's different from the idea where it's hatched. You know, you must be in this way or in that way. It's looking at them and saying wow, I want to do this for you, I want to help you. And when we like that, obviously we all gain. That it's something that leads to benefit for ourselves and benefit for everyone around us. So what we're talking about here is this need for things to be in a certain way. We're not talking about our our love and our appreciation of other people, because certainly that's a positive uh, quality of mind. Now, another thing about this craving is it, it's important to, to stress the fact that this craving only exists, wanting things to be in a certain way or, or you know, they must be this, they must be that, only comes from misunderstanding. Misunderstanding that they are not that way or the, misunderstanding things for what they are, not seeing things clearly for what they are. And this is where meditation is so important. 
Meditation is not going anywhere or becoming anything. It's simply seeing things for what they are. Accepting things and saying, this is what it is. Instead of saying, I wish it were like that. Or I wish it weren't like this. We just say to ourselves, this is the way it is. This is what it is. We see things for what they are. This is called the cessation of suffering. The third truth. Without craving, without wanting things to be in a certain way or needing them to be in a certain way, there's no suffering. There's none. When you accept things for what they are, when you accept reality, and again, reality is singular, when you accept this, we're all sitting here when we accept it. If you're sitting here and you don't like what I say, I'm saying, I mean, I might be saying, what, I might be, what I'm saying might be totally off track, but when you don't like it, when you wish I was saying something else, or wish I'd stopped talking, or wish you hadn't come, you're suffering. And when you can accept it, well, you know, I picked the wrong night to come, but, um, you know, that's life. And when you accept it, you're not suffering. It's not to say that you accept everything. This is important as well. People, also, oh, Buddhism is just about acceptance. Well, not really. It's more about acknowledging and just understanding that this is the way it is. It's not like when someone does bad things, you say, oh, well, that's fine. When someone you know, is, is, is going down the wrong path, you don't try to stop them. It means understanding things for what they are and understanding what you can do to change them in a positive way. Because when you see things for what they are, there's this curious thing that happens is that you start to understand how, to, how they work. You don't just understand what's going on right here and now. We talk about staying in the present moment, and often this, you get this idea, it just means you, you just know here and now. But you also know how things work, how they relate to each other, how the moment before relates to the moment now, and how the moment now relates to the, the next moment. And so you know how to fix things. You know how to change things. You know how to change people. You know what's going on in their mind because you've seen your mind, and you know how the mind works. You can see it in their face. You can see it in their body you can see it in everything they do. And so it's, it's not exactly accepting everything and just letting the things be the way they are. It's, it's acting appropriately or acting in line with reality instead of saying it has to be a different way or, or I wish it were, were in a different way. Um, reality is not a constant um, static moment. It's always changing. And so we change with it. But we change with, with it according to the reality and according to what is proper and appropriate in, the, in this moment. Instead of saying, oh, I wish it was some other way. I wish it were, I wish this moment were different. And not being able to accept the moment and, and roll with the punches or go with the flow and make things happen, cha make change in a real and, and positive manner. So this is the cessation of suffering. It's really simple, actually. Without craving, there's no suffering. The fourth noble truth is, is the meditation practice. It's the, called the Eightfold Noble Path. And if you've ever studied even a little bit of Buddhism, you always hear about this Eightfold Noble Path. And it sounds really ominous, actually. Eight parts. It's, it's um, Well, I guess you could say it's a lot like the 12-step program in, uh, in, in some ways. It's actually not, but it, it sounds like it. Um, because the Eightfold Noble Path all, all comes together at, at one moment. It's not, I'm not dissing the 12-step program. That We have a 16-step program in Buddhism, actually. But the, the Eightfold Noble Path is not this. It's, it's actually a little too much for, for most of our discourse on, on the Buddhist teaching. We actually try to break it down to three parts. And so that's what I'm going to do tonight, especially since I've, I, I'm sure I have a limited amount of time. I normally talk for an hour or even two hours, and my students always... Uh, dread my talks they, as they drag on. So you will have to stop me if I go over time. Um, so the three parts of the Eightfold Noble Path, we're just going to say for the sake of simplicity that this is the, the path that we're talking about. This is the practice that leads to freedom from suffering, leads us to, to give up our, our, our um, partiality, our, our inability to accept and to go with reality and to work with the present moment, our need for things to be other than they, they are. 
So what are we going to do? We're, go we're, we're starting to look here inside of ourselves and we're going to see all of these problems. We're going to see our, our views, our opinions, our conceits, our ego, our jealousy, our stinginess, yeah. our anger, our hatred, our frustrations, uh, our fears, our worries, our stresses. We're going to see all of these things. We're also going to see a good side. We're going to see our love and our compassion, our joy, our calm, our peace. We're going to see many different things going on inside and we're going to have to sort of make sense of all of this. We're going to have to come to see it clearly. Before we can do that, we have to set some ground rules because we're dealing with the mind um, from the point of view of the mind. It's the mind watching the mind and this is, this is very difficult. Why is it very difficult? Most of, or many of the things that we do in our lives are, are, are making, it, making it more than difficult, making it impossible. Um, most especially, we say, immoral deeds. The, the basis of, of Buddhist practice, or, or many sp most spiritual practice, is morality. I'm just going to go with, with Buddhism, but please feel free to extrapolate into your own tradition. Morality is the base, because we're looking at we're looking at ourselves from the point of view of ourselves. We have to use this mind to look at the mind. We don't have anything else to, to, to look at it with. It's, it's us looking at ourselves. And so, if our mind is not in a state of sanity, in a state of, of, of you could say, straightness or, or um, even malleability, then we're not going to be able to look at it. We're, we're not going to be able to settle down enough to be able to see clearly. So the first part is morality, and this is often affected by keeping certain moral rules, like not killing, not stealing, not cheating, um, not lying, not taking drugs and alcohol. But it really is a conscious effort on the part of the mind. It's not actually any of these rules at all. It's a conscious effort on, on the part of the mind to keep our uh, our interactions with the world sane, to keep our interactions with the world calm, and to slowly bring ourselves back to the center. I mean, it's very clear with breaking these basic rules of morality. When you kill, when you're a person who, who kills, it's very difficult to sit down and meditate. Even without killing, simply hurting other people. If you've all been doing meditation, then I'm sure you notice that when you've hurt others, it's very difficult for you to meditate. That's because it's had an effect on your mind. This is karma. If you've ever heard of this theory of karma in Buddhism, it's not some mystical thing. You know, Hinduism, Buddhism, the, the idea of karma is a very real uh, law of nature. And you can see it if you've been meditating. That when you hurt other people, you know, you can't sit still. You have feelings of guilt, feelings of worry, feelings of fear, whatever, even feelings of anger. How could they do that to me? And man, I'm going to get them and so on. And until we can overcome this and kind of put it aside and lay the, the foundation, sort of giving up our busyness, this, these externalities, these things which are totally taking us off balance, killing, stealing, cheating, lying, drugs and alcohol as well, because as I said, we're using the mind to look at the mind. And when our mind is not in a sober, um, an ordinary state, it's, there's not much to look at and there's not much to look with. It's not really of much use to us. So this is the first part in the practice, that we have to straighten out our minds and, and when, our, when we do give rise to these negative feelings, what we're going to do is we're going to use what is called a mantra. I don't know if any of you do mantra meditation, perhaps even here you do do mantra meditation. I'm going to explain it anyway. We know what a mantra is, mostly this is a very familiar word. We have the Om mantra that most people are familiar with. We don't use the Om mantra. Again, we're going to try to look at reality. So we're going to use a mantra which allows us to see reality for what it is and accept it for what it is or, or acknowledge it for what it is as opposed to saying, I wish it were some other way, etc., etc. And so um, what a mantra does, by the way, is it, it, it focuses the mind on its object. So whatever object you choose, whether it's God or whether it's um, uh, self or whether whatever spiritual, could it even just be a... Uh, imagination, you could think of the white, the color white, or you could think of a light, you could think of space, you could think of the universe, 
<clears throat> and when you have a mantra which captures the essence of that uh, object, like the, the, the Christians will say, Jesus, Jesus, and they repeat this to themselves. And this is a mantra. It's a, a mantra is a Sanskrit word. So it kind of means think or so or so. And I'm not exactly clear on the meaning of the word. It, it, it means to consider or to go over. But it's a word which is said to have some kind of power because it focuses you on a, a special object. Here, the, the downside is we're not looking at a special object, we're looking at ourselves. Of course, on the other hand, many people believe that is a fairly special object. I happen to think it's, it's the most and the most important object. It's, it's reality. And so we're going to look at every part of ourselves as it comes up, and we're going to come to accept reality here and now. So when we do have things, suppose we have anger come up. Well, this is going to lead us to do immoral things, for sure. We're going to say bad things, at least we're going to say something nasty to someone. Either that or we're going to hurt ourselves. We're going to repress it, and we're going to um, create a great big headache for ourselves. And, you know, I don't want to hurt them. Oh, I'm such an evil person, why am I angry? And, uh, yeah, no. Hating ourselves instead of the other person. These are immoral things. They're immoral because they lead to suffering. Remember, what we're trying to do is be free from suffering. They're immoral because they they destroy, they hurt the mind. They destroy this state of balance and calm. So we take a mantra and we're just going to focus on the 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 anger. We're going to say to ourselves, angry, angry, angry. Just accepting this anger for what it is. I'll go into this a little bit more later, but I just want to explain. This is kind of this state of morality where we're we're not going to chase after. We're not going to do an immoral thing based on our emotions. Once we start to develop this, then there arises concentration. This is the next part. And this is where we mostly uh, focus, this is what we mostly focus on in meditation, whatever tradition. We're always concerned about concentration, focusing the mind. As we start to bring the mind back and stop letting the mind wander off into bad thoughts and bad uh, ideas, bad intentions, our mind starts to focus, starts to calm down. Another way of saying it is as we start to see things clearly, as we just accept things for what they are, when we're angry, we just, yeah, I'm angry. After a while, it goes away. Once it goes away, there's all that's left is sort of a, a peaceful feeling. You know, no more anger. When we have pain in the body, and we say to ourselves, pain, 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 just reminding ourselves, our mind starts to calm down, starts to focus. Once our mind focuses down, this is where we start to really see things clearly. Um, as our mind stops running around, stops chasing after, you know, feeling guilty about all the bad things we've done, or, or trying, feeling angry or upset about bad things other people have done, or feeling upset about the reality around us which is not perfect, once we start to lose that, then we really start to see clearly. And this is, of course, the goal that we're looking for, because as I said, the only reason that we crave for things to be different than they are is because we don't understand them as they are. We don't see that there's really no benefit in this kind of a, um, a behavior. That The universe doesn't work in that way. It's not like you can wish for something and it's always going to come. And it's not like having it come is going to make you happy, always getting what you want. As we can see, as we the more we get what we want, if you ever if you're ever into shopping, people who shop a lot, they can know this for themselves. It's really an addiction. You get the this wonderful thing, you go shopping and you get it. It's no longer wonderful after a very short time. So as our mind starts to calm down and we start to look at the reality, look at ourselves, look at our experience, and we start to see things for what they are. We start to understand this and we start to see that there's a pattern to our madness, that we're getting into these loops again and again where we cling to things, we chase after things, or we run away from things, we repress things, we suppress things. We're not here and now, we're not present, we're not truly experiencing reality. And this is called wisdom. So we have three parts to the path. If you want to understand what is the path that we're teaching in this meditation tradition, we're teaching first morality to give up all of these things that are driving us crazy or creating this crazy state of mind. Uh, then concentration, which comes naturally from having a good
good sense of morality, and especially the, the kind of sitting still uh, acceptance sort of morality. And once your mind is still, once your mind calms down, once you're able to just be and just see things as they are, then there arises wisdom. You receive many, many things that you didn't realize before. You say, oh, actually, that's not a very useful way of behaving, and that's why I'm suffering. You see why we're so stressed out, why we're depressed, why we're afraid, why we're not sleeping at night. And you're able to do away with all of these things simply by seeing reality clearly, simply by understanding it, and accepting, in a sense, accepting it as real. Yes, it, it is that way. And now we can move on. Until you can see it clearly, until you understand it, can accept it, can be with it, can start at the point where you are, until you can accept this suffering, you can't move on, you can't change it. I guarantee that there's no running away and there's no pretending it doesn't exist. There's no vacation or escape from it. The escape is the understanding and the, the letting go. The letting come and letting go and letting be. So this is a brief, very brief explanation um, of what it is that, that the Four Noble Truths really mean. Um, I hope this is fairly clear. We're talking about uh, a very practical path. This coming to understand things just here, where we are here. We're all sitting together here, coming to understand this for what it is, coming to see it as it is. So I've taken up most of an hour or, or most of my time, but I'd like to now lead everyone through a little bit of semi-guided meditation. And don't worry, I'm not going to guide you so much as as um, maybe give you a, an object of attention. If you'd rather practice your own meditation, you're fine, but you might want to try this to see what it's like. It's just an example. There are many different objects you can use in meditation. I'm not trying to promote this one particularly. It's, it's just a fairly easy one. And I think many people are probably already familiar with it. So we're sitting here still. And if you're very still, unlike me, I'm sitting here talking and moving my hands. If you're very still, there's only really one thing that's moving. And most of you are probably aware of this through your practice of meditation. And that's the breath. Now I want to make a distinction that actually... In terms of experience, we don't experience the breath. We experience the feeling as the air touches our body, the, the parts of the body. If we think in terms of biology, we can understand how this is, that we can't experience the breath exactly. We don't experience anything coming into the body or going out of the body. And this is where it's difficult. There are meditations that focus on the breath going in and out of the body. And there's nothing wrong with these Buddhist meditation um, it's a form of Buddhist meditation, it's an accepted meditation, but it's not what I'm trying to explain here. Here we're going to look at the experience of the breath as it comes into the body. And the clearest experience of the breath as it comes into the body is at the stomach. Um, yeah, at least if you're fairly relaxed it is. If you're, if you're a very tense and stressed person, it often is, is a little bit difficult to feel. But if you've done some meditation and if you're a fairly relaxed person, as you breathe in naturally, you should feel the stomach rise. And as you breathe out, breathe out naturally, you should feel the stomach fall. So we're just going to take this as a, a sort of an example for our mind to, to sort of catch on to and hold on to. It's going to be like a reference point. Because it doesn't really matter what we focus on, our mind is right there. right? If we focus on our foot, our mind has gone to the foot. It's us, it's our mind. So we don't have to run around chasing... Here, we want to look at the mind, right? So everyone's like, well, where's the mind? How, how can I find my mind? It's like chasing a dog, chasing its tail. And it really is. But when you focus on, on a piece of the body, say the foot when we walk, or the, or the stomach when we sit, the mind's there as well. Of course, that's what's looking at it. So we're going to get to see how we react to things. When the stomach rises, how do we feel? When the stomach falls, how do we feel? Maybe we like it for the first part. Maybe after a while it gets boring. Right? So our mind has changed. Now there's boredom in the mind. Maybe after a while it feels uncomfortable, or maybe it feels very comfortable. Maybe we're alert for one moment, and then we're tired for the next moment. So we're going to see a lot about the mind. It's important to understand that 
There's nothing particularly special about the stomach. It's just that it's a good reference point to start to look at the other things. So I'm going to ask everyone to start to focus on your mind and if you, uh, on your stomach. And if you can't feel it, you can just take one hand and place it over your stomach. At least for the beginning. Otherwise, you can just fold your hands in your lap. And when the stomach rises, just say to yourself, rising. This is going to be our mantra because it's going to focus on, on the, the rising. When it falls, we're going to say to ourselves, fall. We try to say it from the beginning to the end, so we're really there with the reality of it as it starts rising all the way to the end. When it falls, fall. And it doesn't have to be that slow. I'm not, I'm not saying you should try to force it to be a certain length. Just accept it for what it is. If it's shallow, it's shallow. If it's deep, it's deep. It's going to change. From time to time it'll be shallow, from time to time it'll be deep. Just accept it for what it is and just be with it. And come to learn something about, about our own mind, which is watching it. And we don't say it out loud. Again, we're, we're saying it, our mind is in our stomach, and we're saying it in the stomach, in the mind. You just say to yourself, rising, falling. And what we should, most of us should see is that the mind isn't staying with the stomach all the time. There's a lot of other things going on, and this isn't a problem. Again, we're not trying to judge or force. It's not like we should then say, oh, something's wrong, and the mind's not with the stomach. Well, that's the nature of the mind. It's, it's unmanageable. Unma it's got a lot of problems in it because we've been neglecting it. So it's sometimes it'll go out, and this is most common when you're sitting on the floor in meditation, but it can also happen sitting in the chairs that there'll be lots of pain in the body. From time to time there'll be aches and pains and soreness. Or there might be happy feelings. There might be neutral feelings. Sometimes people sit and they feel very calm. Sometimes people sit and feel very happy. This is also possible. But whatever the feeling is, we're, we can take this as our object of meditation as well. We should, in fact, if that's what's prominent, forget about the rising and falling and instead focus on the feeling. If you feel happy, just say to yourself, happy, happy. Again, not judging this either. Too often we feel happiness and then we really like it. And we're so, I think it's so cool. Meditation is great. Until next time we sit and it's, it's gone. There's no happiness. Or we get up from our meditation and we got to go back to work, or we got to go back to our boring everyday life, our stressful everyday life. So we shouldn't judge this either, otherwise it's going to just be a cause of suffering for us. Nothing wrong with being happy. Just say to yourself, reaffirm that it's there, that it is. Nothing more, nothing less. If you feel calm, just say to yourself, calm. I mean, these are really easy to get addicted to, get attached to. And it can be a real problem. I know many meditators who, they feel like they've just 
gotten stuck that all their meditation is is kind of an escape from the everyday and when they go back to life they're, they have a lot of suffering still again wisdom or understanding shouldn't be something that you leave behind at, on the, the sitting mat when you get up and go back to life it should be still there with you if it's real understanding when you really understand life it, it's all life nothing special about sitting on a meditation pillow. It's just a lot easier. If you feel pain, then just focus on the pain. Again, there's nothing wrong with it. You don't have to believe me. and You don't have to believe me at all. I'm not asking you to believe anything. Just look at it. When you feel pain, just say to yourself, pain, pain. If it's bad, you'll see that it's bad. But as you start to accept it for what it is, you see that, oh yeah, it's true. It's just pain. And it might be there for a long time. But so what? This is incidentally very useful in, in today's age when we're so obsessed with painkillers and doctors prescribing medication which can often dull the senses and really do the opposite of what we're trying to do here which is clear our minds, make our minds bright and alert. My grandmother died very in great amount of pain and under great um, um, sort of you could say delusion through through painkillers, alternating with terrible pain, which you can really be free from if you just understand pain for what it is. And when the pain goes away or the happiness goes away, just come back to the rising and fall. Perhaps a bigger one is thinking, though. We'll find that we have many thoughts. It's not a problem. To cease to believe that it's a problem to think it's the, during meditation. We're, again, we're not separating this reality from our everyday reality. So thinking is very much a part of reality. It's the nature of the mind to think. So just remind yourself that's what it is, thinking, thinking, thinking. Once it's gone, come back to the rising and fall. The final thing that we have to look at is in the beginning, of, especially in the very beginnings of our meditation, is sort of the negative aspects of mind which are going to get in the way of our meditation. There's five of these that we recognize. So, liking and disliking are the first two. Liking or wanting, this sort of this we call the positive emotion. It's actually not much so positive about it, especially for meditation. If we're sitting in meditation and suddenly we want something or we're thinking about something great that we're, uh, we could be doing otherwise or suppose we're sitting and we get a craving for this or that food or so on. It makes it very difficult to sit still. Our mind is not calm, it's not at peace. It's not with the present reality. Even when we like the meditation, when we're happy, so enjoying the meditation, as soon as we start enjoying it, start liking it, you know, the happiness, there's nothing wrong with that, but as soon as we start liking it, well, we're no longer experiencing it. We're now like, oh, this is great. Now, you don't have to believe me. I mean, this is, I think, a difficult one. But we're not asking, I'm not asking you to believe anything about it. Just look at it. 
when you say when you like something, just say to yourself, liking, liking, liking. When you don't like something, just say to yourself, disliking, disliking, disliking. This one works great for so many different mental sicknesses. People are out there taking drugs for these things. When they could just be learning about them. What an opportunity to understand the mind. Depression, you just say to yourself, depressed depressed, depressed. Just know that you're depressed. It's just an emotion. When you're stressed, when you're afraid, just say afraid, afraid. When you're sad, sad, sad. Just experiencing it. Focusing on it, actually. Learning about it. Something we never did before. We never wanted to. We never wanted to have anything to do with these emotions. It's like, that's like trying to run away from your own tail. running away from your shadow, running away from yourself. The third one is laziness or sloth and torpor, when our mind is not malleable. This kind of comes, well, at the end of a day, now it's getting late and we've probably been working all day. So it, it's not a, it's not necessarily something we have to feel bad about or ashamed of, but it's, it's very common us to feel drowsy, but it will get in the way, and so we have to be very careful about this as well. When we feel drowsy, just say to ourselves, drowsy, drowsy, trying to catch it and sort of see it clearly, because the, the trick here is once you see it clearly, it's you're no longer drowsy. Your mind is bright and fresh again. The opposite of drowsiness is distraction, when our minds are not focused. This is not like thinking, it's like thinking too much. And your mind is just not, not having anything to do with this. Here, there, and everywhere. And that's no problem. We just say to ourselves, distracted, distracted. As you say distracted, your mind gets more focused. And the final one is doubt. Doubt is a killer in spiritual practice. It's a killer. You can see in all religions, everyone's talking about how important faith is. Now, I don't know how, how much importance I would personally place on faith, but doubt is certainly a real killer. Because, you know, you might be doubting doubt, doubt-worthy things. It's, it's totally possible. But at the moment when you're doubting, your mind is not calm, your mind is not focused. Your mind is totally split. It doesn't know where to go. So we're not going to make any decisions or any... any we're not going to make any... Um, we're not going to go in either direction. You're not sure which way to go or what's right. Is this right? Is it wrong? We're not going to make any decision because you can't make a decision that way. You can't just say, okay, it's right. Well, obviously you didn't know it's right or you wouldn't have to make the decision. If you knew it was right, there'd be no doubt. So what do we do about doubt? Same thing. When we're doubting, we just say to ourselves, doubting, doubting. It's like hitting the nail on its head. Like, gee, left or right, doubting, doubting. They both disappear. All that's left is the doubting. Doubting, doubting. And then you see, what a silly thing. Once the doubting's gone, there's no problem. You're at peace. These five are important. You have to keep them in mind and, and really pay attention when they come up because they'll really lead you off the... The track out of the present moment, but when they're gone, then we come back again to the rising and the falling.
thank you. That's uh, sort of just a short example of um, a practice which we could consider a practice based on um, the Four Noble Truths, or the, the truths that as taught by the Lord Buddha. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and uh, if there still is time, I'm happy to receive questions. If we're out of time, then thank you all for coming, and uh, hope to see you again someday. <laughs>